0: Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by lionrock.life.
1: I packed up my suitcase and got all my stuff together and I was like, I'm gonna take a bus back to the East Coast, I'm gonna use my last money, and then I'm gonna figure it out. And I like walked down the road with my little suitcase and then I literally just stopped and I was like, I'm so exhausted, like I don't wanna figure it out anymore, I'm so sick of figuring it out.
0: Well, hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today we have Quinn Harlow. Quinn felt her addictive personality very early. As a child growing up in New York, her first addictions were sports and dance. Anxiety and depression came along early as well, and when she started drinking and smoking weed, she could tell that her relationship with it was different from her friends around her. So she moved on to Molly and pills while her friends had not even graduated from weed. In middle school, she started a relationship that was codependent in nature, which would go on to shape her relationships for the next several years. She needed drugs and alcohol. She needed to be in a relationship, and nothing would stop her from getting either. After high school, she got into her dream art school, something she didn't think was possible. But then again, the drugs were there to take it away, and she came home again. Her parents tried everything they could. They put alarms on the doors and windows to try to keep her safe from herself. But as soon as she was out, she made up for lost time and created years worth of havoc. She attempted to move away from the problem again and again, but heroin and IV drugs entered the picture. Today, she is four years clean and sober and works as a peer recovery specialist. There, she's able to help so many teens and parents with their struggles with substances. I had such a wonderful conversation today with Quinn. She brought up so many points that we haven't touched on here in a while. And I was really, really excited to get her perspective and a reminder on how cunning, baffling and powerful the disease of addiction is. I know it can be really confusing for families to try to understand what's going on with their loved one who is struggling. And this episode really describes a lot of the thought processes that do, or in this case, do not go into decisions being made around substances. And I hope it's helpful and brings some clarity. Feel free to check out more of Quinn's content at Rehab Bestie on TikTok. All right, friends, I hope you enjoy this episode. And without further ado, I give you Quinn Harlow. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Thank you so much for being here. Let's start out with what is your sobriety date?
1: Actually, it's June seventh of twenty nineteen. Yeah, today is four years, and I didn't even plan that when I scheduled it. Yeah, but yeah, awesome. it's perfect.
0: <laughs> Congratulations. Okay, Thank so talk you. to me. Let's talk to me about so four years and how old were you when you got sober?
1: Um, initially, I was twenty two when I got sober, and that was April fourth, twenty eighteen. And then I had a relapse that I'll tell you more about, but um, it was a pretty quick relapse that was 2019 so i was 23 at the time of my date
0: (laughs) awesome okay and so what are some like i want to get into your story but i want to hear a bit about what you know on your birthday june 7th what are some of your reflections at four years
1: i don't know i've had a lot like there's been so much change each year but my relapse was actually on weed it was like it was such a less drastic place than when I first came in in 2018. So I was having like a lot of reflections of where I was at then in April because I was having all those memories come back. And then now I just was really thinking of like how much courage it took to get the white chip and come back and everything and how I'm so grateful that I did that in 2019 because thank God my relapse didn't go any further than the weed. That I felt that that was going to happen. Yeah, just a lot of gratitude that I was like plugged in enough at that point and had enough. I had heard enough stories to know, okay, I'm seeing the signs. This isn't going to turn out well if I keep going this direction. Yeah, I just was kind of thinking about like going to that meeting that day, telling everyone that I had relapsed after I had like just gotten a year, which was such a big deal at the time because. I was never I wasn't like a chronic relapser. I just really didn't get it until I got it. So a year was a really long time for me. Yeah, I've just had those kind of reflections of like how it felt to kind of put that pride aside, come back.
0: So did you start drinking and using cuz you had like a horrible family in childhood or what what was the what was your impetus for using? You always wanted to be a drug addict? <laughs>
1: no i i had actually a great family a good childhood i do think i had like the genetic predisposition there's like a ton of addicts and alcoholics especially on my mom's side of the family so the first time that i tried smoking or drinking it was like that like it was instant i definitely was like a perfectionist as a kid put a lot of pressure on myself never felt comfortable in my own skin i was a dancer so there was a lot of criticism on my body and all this stuff that I really internalized. Yeah, it was like I just did everything to the extreme. Like if I was going to do dance, I did it seven days a week and then I just immediately cut it off and I did the same thing with school like I, I like had to have straight A's and then the pressure kept building and then I was like, nope, I'm not going to try at all anymore. I'm going to make it clear that I'm not trying so that the pressure's off. The first time that I like drank and smoked, it was like, this is what I've been waiting for. Finally comfortable, and it was really quick. Yeah, I
0: relate to that a lot in the sense that I felt I had a lot of the, you know, straight A's perfectionism. And then when I was like, how do I get out of this? Like, I've I've committed myself to being a straight A student to like, this is what everybody expects of me. The drugs and alcohol gave me this out of like, well, now no one can rely on me now. on no one can expect this of me because I'm now unreliable.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it was like an identity, too. Like I had always tried out different styles, different friend groups, like never really felt comfortable. And then with that, it was like, okay, this can be my identity. Like (laughs) I can just try to be like the bad kid who doesn't try and like be the best at that because I didn't feel like the best at any of the other things I was doing.
0: Did your parents
1: talk to you about substances when you were growing up? Yeah they did. Um, I think it was like they had pretty normal reactions as parents back in the beginning and it was like like I the first time I drank I like threw up all over the basement and did all that stuff and I think that they were sort of just thinking like all right she's experimenting she's rebelling whatever and they thought that it would reel back in Um, and that was in middle school that I started. I think it was like 13 when I started to drink and smoke. So before that, I don't remember a whole lot of talking about it, like warning me of the effects or anything. But after that, they would really try to you know, talk to me about it in a pretty normal way. What did you think when they talked to you about it? I don't know. I think I was like very much a teenager. Like I was like, whatever you guys don't know just very rebellious and just wanted to go against whatever they wanted me to do at that point. (laughs) So, but then at the same time, I did have like guilt that would come up, but that really started to kind of snowball more like in the, after a few years when I was really having consequences, my family was really having consequences. But before the consequences really built up, I was like, you guys don't know, I'm just a kid. I'm just having fun.
0: When did you start to see the difference between how you used and how your friends who still were, let's call it normal, how they would party and experiment? When did you start to see like, oh, maybe I'm a little bit different than they are?
1: Yeah, it was pretty quickly. Like I remember my brother is a couple of years younger than me. He had a very different reaction immediately, even though he was in sort of the same general friend group and everything. But there would be days when I would ask him if he wanted to smoke. And he was like, no, I'm good. And I could not relate to that at all. I was like, what do you mean you don't want to (laughs) Like, if it's here? How could you not want to? Right. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, I kind of saw the consequences when it came to my friends pretty quickly, because the people that I was hanging out with didn't want to party every single time we hung out. So my best friend, Phoebe and I kind of split off from that friend group and started hanging out with people that did react more in the same way that we did. because I just I couldn't relate to not wanting to do it every time and it just was sort of that black and white thinking of this isn't me anymore these friends aren't me anymore this is my identity now
0: <laughs> I remember thinking it was so wild how and and I attempted to do this and went miserably but how people would like save drugs for like a special occasion like you'd have a bag of mushrooms and they were like we're going to the woods Saturday I'm like but it's in your possession right Right now like yeah <laughs> they, they were like no, no no but we're waiting till set you know we're waiting for a great setting to do the drugs I'm like but you have the drugs right now we have to use the drugs now we can't wait three days that's insane <laughs> and and just that it was like a different I could not hold on to any drugs or and or alcohol that I had to like save it for a specific time frame it was always we're going to use
1: what we have all the time whenever we Mm -hmm. yeah and i would get it with the plan that i was going to save it but as soon as anyone into my system it was over like (laughs) it was all going to be gone
0: what were some of the consequences when they started to build obviously you changed friend groups this is your new identity what were some of the early signs and consequences for you
1: i I had gotten into a relationship right, sort of at the time when I had started smoking and drinking, and it sort of like immediately tied relationships and codependency in too. But the guy that I was in a relationship with sold weed, and he smoked a lot of weed. Significantly and older. He was a couple years older. Okay, yeah, okay. two grades older than me. So. That was in eighth grade that I got into that relationship. Um, and I was in the relationship for almost all of high school. And in that time period we got arrested. I had to go to a class for drugs. Not a class for drugs, but a class against drugs, like about the consequences <laughs> and everything. Pro drug class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I just didn't really take that seriously. Like we would smoke weed, go to the class, eat pizza. I didn't see as, as much of a consequence. It just sort of went with this kind of lifestyle that I was signing up to live. But it really was at the end of high school. I had started to get into harder drugs. And like, I guess it was like junior, senior year. I had started to do Molly a lot. And that was really having consequences on like my serotonin levels. And then I just was having these high highs and low lows so the comedowns i would be like just miserable like i remember just like sitting in the woods sobbing so then i started to take xanax to make the comedowns more bearable so it was like that those sort of cycles started to build and i started to lose my friends that i had been partying with were starting to get sick of my shit and then that relationship he had like sort of stopped at stoner like he really didn't have a problem beyond that he went to school held a job so he ended up breaking up with me and then it was like huge spiral um and that was sort of like the big like really big consequence it felt very big at the time especially because i had been with him for such a big fraction of my life like from eighth grade to senior year so yeah that was sort of the big like the first really big blow and i just remember when he was breaking up with me He was like, Do you really think that you're like okay and like our relationship is fine? And I was like, Yeah, like I thought everything was fine. But I was so in my own little world that I wasn't even realizing the wreckage that I was creating yet. And yeah, there there started to be more really embarrassing moments of like, because I ended up sort of skipping the Molly and just going straight to Xanax after that. I was blacking out all the time and hearing things that I had done and like peeing myself all the time. Oh, yeah. And like, just Uh,
0: very (laughs) very relatable.
1: Yeah, I remember like falling asleep on people's couches, waking up with pee on myself. It became like just a normal, regular thing. And then also, I don't
0: remember, did it really happen? Is it? Did you you DNA test this couch? It could have been
1: a passerby. I started like I would spill water on myself and I'd be like, oh, I spilled. And I had drank so much that it was so diluted that it was like not even I mean, at least I didn't think it was identifiable as pee. But um, and then also my graduation party, I remember having one of those moments of clarity after where I was like, "Oof, this is starting to get embarrassing and everything because I completely blacked out with like my entire family, there, extended family and everything. And my mom had like made it really nice. I just felt so much guilt after like I was like, wow, I just embarrassed everyone. Yeah, that was sort of one of the first moments where I remember being like, this probably isn't good, but it wasn't bad enough yet that I was considering stopping. It was just like, I'm going to use more so I don't have to think about this anymore.
0: Right, right. Could you imagine at that time, if someone had said, like, imagine life without drugs or alcohol, could you have even pictured what that would look
1: like? No, definitely not. It felt so ingrained. And I also at the end of high school started dating my drug dealer. So it was really it was like a complete rebound, had no idea how to be alone. He was the person I was seeing the most. So, yeah, I got into that and that whole situation was just humiliating, like from beginning to end. He was super abusive and he would have like temper tantrums. And when I think about who I was in that relationship, it's like, what was I even thinking? Like, I can't even picture. But my brain was in such a different place. A bunch of consequences came with that, too.
0: I hear a lot from parents that their child is, or, you know, adult child or loved one, whatever, is smoking weed and that it's like starting to get out of control, but they don't think it's that bad because it's weed or their loved one is cut back to weed. And there's this idea that I see. And for context, I got sober at 19 and have been sober 17 years. And so went to college, did all the things and I I started with weed and then moved eventually, you know, with shooting heroin and and all the boyfriends and the drug dated the drug dealer and the codependency. I went to treatment for codependency because I couldn't stay sober. So like very relatable to to your experience and and So many times I have the conversation with people where they're trying to tell me how weed is not as bad or harmless. And I'm just curious what you're as as a young person, like, do you think weed is harmless?
1: For some people, I think it's pretty harmless. I definitely don't think it's as harmless, even just for a regular person as They kind of try to make it out to be right now like even with my brother who's not an addict or anything you can see the difference in just his day-to-day habits when he's smoking a lot versus when he's not but for me i think it's very harmful and it comes up a lot because i'm a peer recovery specialist And I work with parents who are trying to get their kids back or the organization is DCF in Florida, Department of Children and Families, but it's like CPS in other areas. So I work with a company that works alongside them called the Children's Network. I work with teenagers and then also with parents. And now that the medical card has become so easy to obtain that's been coming up a lot more because they're like it's a medication I'm prescribed this but I know that for me weed was never enough when I relapsed it so quickly took over my mind and all of my daily habits in the same way that any other drug would And I knew that like already it wasn't getting me high enough anymore, even just over like the month that I was smoking. And it was going to lead to other things inevitably for me. Um, And that's the experience that I've seen a lot of people have that they try just smoking weed, but it's still a crutch. And then eventually it's not enough. So then they go back to their substance of choice. Just to commentary
0: on that, which is This was something that working in the treatment field that I dealt with a lot and I just thought I'd share with the audience what I came to because uh, we had to think about this a lot. Like, Do we allow people into our program who are prescribed marijuana? Because we do allow people into our program who are prescribed medication from a doctor. And here's what I came up with, marijuana, when you have a medical card, you're not prescribed a dosage. There is no other medication where you're prescribed something and there is no dosage and there's no regularity on take it this often at this, even if it's prescribed PRN, which is as needed. It's still not to exceed X amount. it's still a, there's still a dosage. there's still all these you know parameters around it. And every single substance, including water has a toxicity level. And a non therapeutic level. So, at a certain level, you you know, you drink it, it does nothing, or smoke it, or whatever it is, it it does absolutely nothing non therapeutic. And at other levels including water it is toxic and deadly and so the marijuana medical cards if people if listeners are coming up against this with their kids or loved ones my question is what's the dosage what's the prescription and if there isn't a dosage a true dosage and and time frame and schedule with it then it's not really a true medical prescription and so that's sort of how we delineated that and To this day, I've had no one come to me and say, okay, here's my dosage. It really doesn't qualify as a medication at that that point, unless you have serious cancer, in which case, actually, they do give you a dosage.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's I really try not to like close people out. Like I go to AA. So I've heard some people who are like very judgmental about it and make it so that people don't feel welcome if they're smoking weed. And I feel like that's just more harmful because then they're smoking weed and they don't have a program. So I try to really just tell them to like like keep coming back. You don't need to share with everyone that you're smoking weed, but if you keep coming I don't know. I've seen a lot of people, it starts to sink in and then they make the choice themselves to stop smoking once they have seen enough people, heard enough people's experiences. So yeah, I try not to like shut them out because I think that's the worst thing you can do. hundred percent,
0: hundred percent. And it's their journey, right? Because you and I both with our relapses had to experience, oh, it really doesn't work or, oh, you know, this I don't want to do this anymore. This doesn't feel right. But we had to have that experience to draw on in order to stay sober going forward. You know, at four years, you have to be able to think back to man that relapse i really when i did that when i had that relapse it really did work for me and so getting four years in a day is easier than maybe it would have been if you had that curiosity in the back of your mind like would it work and and the longer you go with that curiosity sometimes it can it can be this thing that eats away at you
1: yeah And I had tried it previously too before I had even gotten into heroin or anything. I had tried just smoking weed after I had been addicted to Xanax. And I was like counting sober days and everything. I moved to Denver. I was like, I'm going to be in Colorado because that was where I think that was the only place that weed was legal at the time. It was in like 2016. And I tried like just smoking but it still kept taking over eventually i was like just doing dabs and weed wasn't enough and then like i couldn't hang out with anyone without doing i couldn't go to school i couldn't do homework like it still had this little hold over me even though my life was a lot more manageable than it had been when i was doing xanax But then, like, I kept passing this one guy that had this backpack on the way to school. I knew that he knew where to get other drugs. I kept, like, just kind of trying to use self-will and, like, restraint to not talk to him. But I went through a breakup. And then as soon as I went through the breakup, I was like, boom, I know exactly where to go. There was, like, not even any thought in it because weed wasn't enough to like combat the pain of the breakup it was enough to like get through day to day at that point but it just came to a point where it wasn't i saw that happen really quickly with my relapse like it was like an immediate thing yeah luckily when i relapsed i had already had the experience trying that before and i saw where it was going but i think i also needed to hear other people's experiences like in aa and everything and that helped me a lot too
0: How did you progress from Xanax to heroin? What was your trajectory and and at what point, or were there ever points that you thought to yourself, oh, I'm in too deep?
1: Yeah, there definitely were, but I had um, been in that toxic abusive relationship, like Xanax was still my drug choice at the time and I was drinking a ton. I started to like really lash out, like especially when it came to men and stuff. I was like just trying to get any attention that I could get. And I had such a lack of clarity, like I was blacking out all the time. And the consequences were really great. And I had a seizure when I tried to come off of it. I had a really bad seizure. And that's sort of when I decided to like move to Colorado, try just smoking and like drinking sometimes and like maybe doing Coke sometimes, but that was going to be sober (laughs) for me. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 totally. I'm going to be sober. I'm going to be smoking and doing coke occasionally, which is sober for me, of course. Yes.
1: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that was when I moved over there. And I moved over there with a guy who was a great guy. He was really trying to help me and everything. I had made his life hell in New York, where I was from. And then it just
0: you're codependent.
1: Yeah, it was very toxic still. But I was kind of trying to like, play out this healthy lifestyle. Yeah. Then when I went through that breakup, um, these three guys from my hometown, one of them was on the run from (laughs) New York and they reached out to me. And I knew like I had used with them before I knew what type of addicts they were when I made the choice to like hang out with them, I sort of knew Okay, I'm going to be committing to like the addiction lifestyle again. I started again with just doing Xanax and then and drinking a lot. And I was just on this like crazy bender because I had such a lack of clarity and lack of inhibitions. That's when I got into heroin, even though I didn't like plan on it and I didn't want to get into that, but they were all heroin addicts. At the time, it seemed like, okay, this is more available. This is in front of me. I was really seeing the consequences with Xanax. So... Even though it sounds insane, like heroin (laughs) might be better. (laughs) No, I totally,
0: I totally get that. I I love that you bring this up because I hadn't thought about that. But do not, if you are are looking at the ad, you know, your run of the mill addict and you're wondering how in the hell did you get from point A to point B, do not underestimate the impact of availability. Because I'll tell you, I loved cocaine and I went on the run with my ex-boyfriend's mother and she was addicted to methamphetamine. I did not love methamphetamine, but I'll tell you what, it was all that was there. So you know what happened? I'm addicted to methamphetamine. You know, it's like it's like I don't like this, but I definitely have to do this because it's here.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I had always had a curiosity and it was part of like my like leveling up in my little drug addict world. I was like I kind of knew I was going to end up in a worse place and then a worse place. But there are so many like weird hamster wheels of thought that get you to the point where you're shooting heroin, (laughs) like so many justifications and yeah the main thing was really just availability i was around people that were doing it they were also justifying it to themselves so i was hearing them justify it i was like they're okay they've been doing this for years and i remember just sitting back one day like first of all the three guys had moved into my studio apartment my whole life had completely turned upside down the guy that was on the run was like doing all these scams. He was scamming me. He was scamming other people. My life had gone from pretty normal to so shady so quickly. And I just sort of sat back and was like, what the fuck? This is serious. This is way worse than before. And it had happened so quickly from my little sobriety period of just smoking and sometimes drinking and sometimes doing coke. I was like a full-blown junkie. I was shooting crack. I was like just... Mm -hmm. Nuts, but it kept going downhill from there. I also think
0: it's funny that because I think it's part of like the narrative that changes over time. But one of the narratives like I I hear is like that you went from this pretty normal to shooting heroin. And the truth, I think, is that when we're addicted to things, we change our goals to meet our lifestyle, right? And most people, they change their life to meet their goals. And we are the other way around. And you know, you specifically moved to a state because marijuana was legal, not because you like the mountains. because like you, you were like, I have to move here because I need this thing that's legal, right? And and when when you talk about you were always moving all your, all your things around to meet this weed addiction. And yeah, you kept it together enough to like go to school and to make it seem normal. All your decisions were driven by this attempt to smoke weed normally. And yeah. it only worked as long as you were only smoking weed and even then questionable, but like, that was your whole world. And so I, I challenged this idea that like, it was okay. I had it under control until like, I started doing these other things because I think from your description, I mean, your decisions were run by marijuana for years even though it didn't get so out of control until like the
1: molly and the xanax yeah definitely and i was like smoking weed like a crackhead like i wasn't smoking right. weed
0: right, right like a normal yeah, person yeah, yeah. yeah
1: i remember when i'd gotten really into like the dabs and the wax and all that stuff and mentally i was like weed's not enough now it's not gonna do enough i did really like hiking and stuff so i had gotten into that more and i went on this hiking trip and like at the top of the mountains there's There's not enough oxygen to light the torch lighter. (laughs) I was like running down the mountains. First of all, I had packed my entire like dab rig setup, which is crazy in general. Like most people could have a night where they didn't have it, or they could just smoke a joint or something. But I was like, no, I need this because this is what is getting me through right now. And yeah, I was like running down the mountain trying to get enough oxygen to like light this torchlight. Oh, my God. <laughs> that I can, Like it was not normal. But at the time, it was like I had more normalcy than I had had in years. And I think like my family was really holding on to that, too, because they were like, she's relatively safe she's relatively okay <laughs> but, <laughs> but but that's
0: it is that it's relative
1: everybody's standards start to drop for us right like
0: they're really high for us in the beginning and then it's like well she's more normal than she was she only gets 5150 once a year you know whereas Three years earlier, that state, you know, the standards change. And so I think you're absolutely right, which is like everybody's holding on to this closer to normalcy when the reality is it's still not normal, but the standards have changed.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I had also suffered from eating disorders, which had started in high school. And when I would scale back on the drug use, those would always go up more too. So it was this like, there was always an imbalance happening. Like it was always unmanageability. It just was like where the unmanageability was, was shifting.
0: (laughs) And for me, getting sober and being sober, staying sober has been, you know, it was always easier to manage, it felt more comfortable to deal with and be in my addiction, in my substance addiction than it did to deal with my eating disorder or my love addiction. I was like, I would rather be in the substances than deal with those other things and getting sober in part there's a lot of reckoning that happens, having to deal with those things in order to remain sober. And and that's where a lot of the work comes in.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was like different levels. Like when I first got sober before I relapsed, I really got into the eating disorder heavily. I was running constantly. But actually, first, I had just been eating and sleeping all the time. So I gained a little bit of weight and then that triggered the eating disorder. So then I went completely the other way. And it was like all these different types of addictions happening. And then it wasn't until after I relapsed when I kind of was shaken up enough to be like, okay, maybe I need to do the steps, actually get into like figuring out what the problem is here that I started to really work on that stuff, too. Because I still had so much imbalance and like dishonesty and craziness before that, and a little bit after that too, but just <laughs> not as much. Yes, we're, we're works in progress.
0: So talk to me about you know, so you're you're shooting heroin and crack, and you sign a lease with these three guys who don't pay, and life's just really uh, spiraling in. Who knows what direction we have all these moments of clarity and people think that a moment of clarity is longer than a moment to be clear it is a moment and you either capitalize on the moment or you wait for the next moment, and we don't know when those moments are gonna be. It is a small window. So you are talk you talk about having these moments of clarity. When is the first time that you capitalize on the a, a moment of clarity?
1: I sort of tried to capitalize on that one in that I made a geographical change. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I went with one of the guys that I had been doing heroin with. He had been sober in Florida for a while. So I was like, I got to get out of here. I'm scared, whatever. My parents knew it wasn't a good idea for me to go to my hometown. So I ended up going to Florida. And that was like my little bit of capitalizing on it. And I really, truly, like if I had taken a lie detector test, I would have told you, yeah, I'm going to go so I can be sober, which is again, just smoking weed and drinking. Right, right, right. (laughs) Whatever else, just not doing heroin now, because my bar has gotten further. So yeah, I really, my intention was to do better when I moved to Florida, but immediately I was like around way more addicts in Florida than I had been in Colorado. And my first day at work, I met a girl that was doing heroin and it was immediately the clarity was gone. (laughs) So that was sort of my first, well, another little shift. And then as things got worse, it felt like it was like harder to get away from the clarity because it was so glaring how yeah, bad yeah. things were. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So I was trying so hard to not think about how bad it was. It became like this really painful thing of like I was doing heroin, but while I was doing it, I was just thinking about how scared I was and how I'm going to die. This is so bad. I'm, I have so much guilt and shame and whatever. And then I would go to detox because i was like okay i need to get out of this whatever but as soon as the substances were out of my body the clarity was gone like it was this weird shift because my body and mind were like i need drugs right now so i started in this whole thing of like going into detox then the drugs leaving my system and then immediately going back out to do more drugs. And it was this back and forth. And it was like when my brain was in the space of like, I need to get sober, I need to do this. That was all that I could see. And then when that clarity was gone, it was as if I had never, I was like, why would I ever have wanted to get sober? Like, why would I ever have thought I could do that? And then I would leave. It was this back and forth craziness.
0: So you go into detox. At what point does your brain start to at what point does your brain start to talk to you about like, oh my god, I need drugs? It, like, how far into the detox, or is it when you get out, or is it while you're still in the in the facility? And were people talking to you about getting into some sort of program other than just detox alone?
1: Um, It depended because I ended up like going to detox something like fifteen or twenty times. Like it ended up just becoming a thing that I did. Right. Okay. And as I kept doing it, I was learning like how to get more prescriptions when I was in there, what to say, all of that. So I would be really comfortable in detox. And then it wasn't until sort of the end that I was like, no, I'm not going to a rehab because I would go with the plan to go to rehab at that point. And then I would, the clarity would come later on. But at first it was sort of instant. As soon as I would start to feel any withdrawal symptoms, I would want to leave. I would leave literally on the first or second day. When I went to detox, I always went with the intention of getting sober, like I started I would pack an entire suitcase for treatment and everything like I oh, want so to go to 30 like really, days. You really planned on getting. Yeah, sober. exactly. And then I would be in there and someone would say something about we could leave or whatever, and um, all the way until up when I actually ended up going like to treatment and getting sober, I never stayed in rehab for more than a day. It was always just detox. <laughs>
0: So you went to detox upwards of uh, 15, 20 times and you did make it to a treatment program a couple of times. Okay. But you just didn't stay more than a day. Okay, Okay. Did you eventually go to rehab and stay in rehab?
1: yeah i did i didn't go on the east coast of florida though luckily (laughs) but yeah i had been in and out of the hospital a lot too with like abscesses and like i just was sick all the time and i was getting more and more scared and um i kind of had another moment of clarity because there was this nurse that would always see me going to that same hospital and um he was like you realize like it's crazy that you even had the chance to come back as many times as you have the fact that you're even alive is like a miracle and the two other heroin addicts that were here today one of them died like a couple rooms down and the other one was dropped out front dead and it was kind of this like for some reason even though obviously i knew that doing heroin was deadly that was one of those moments that kind of like shattered my little version of reality for a minute and I just was like really scared and but then even after that I still went home and shot the drugs into the same place that had the abscess when they were telling me like you're at risk of losing your arm like that's nuts to think about but I was scared and it had planted this sort of seed so I called my mom and I was crying and I was like I think I need help and she was like okay well like let's get you into rehab and I was like no 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 I don't need all that like 30 days in rehab seemed crazy to me for some reason it seemed like that's never gonna work instead I went home for a few weeks and just like created so much wreckage like I was just a mess. I was a tornado. After that time home, I didn't even want to go to my hometown for a while because I embarrassed myself so much. And at that point, my family was like, look, you can't come home anymore. We're not going to help you with rent. We're not going to any of it anymore um, unless you really get help because at this point we're just enabling you. I want to
0: pause right here. For our parents listeners, I just want to highlight what was said, which is that they brought her home. It was a terrible idea, there were a lot of consequences, and then when they stopped giving her money and resources and told her she could, o- they would only help her if she went to treatment. She went to treatment and got well. Literally, think about that formula for a second. Anyone who's listening, stop bringing your kids home. Stop giving them resources and tell them they only get resources if they go to treatment. Okay, that's my soapbox. Yeah,
1: <laughs> no, exactly. And it, they were really trying. Like they would never give me cash, but they would give me like food cards, mm-hmm. and then. You'd sell By giving card. me a food card, either I could sell it or I could just use the money that I did have on drugs when. I maybe would have needed to use it on food or gas or whatever, but their intentions were really good. And they started going to Al-Anon and getting more of an idea of, okay, what is enabling and everything. So yeah, I know it was really difficult for them to do that because they were like, she's either going to be on the street and reach like a whole new level of low because I was homeless at that point. I was like staying on these people's couch, but they were like, we're not even going to give you the money to give them for rent. You got to go to treatment. Um, And I know that they felt like there was the risk that now she could either go way lower or this could be good. Yeah, I give them a lot of credit for doing that. So, yeah, I ended up going from being home in New York. I went and stayed with these this family. It was actually the family of the guy I'd moved to Florida with for a little bit like a week or two, and they helped me get into rehab and everything. And I still didn't want to go. I was still being very resistant. I was like calling and saying, no, they don't have a bed. And (laughs) they would call and just like check me. But yeah, I ended up going to a detox and a rehab. And I did have a moment before that. Because I could feel, too, like this is either coming to a close right now or I'm going to need to reach a new low. I packed up my suitcase and got all my stuff together and I was like, I'm going to take a bus back to the East Coast. I'm going to use my last money and I'm going to figure it out. And I like walked down the road with my little suitcase and then I literally just stopped and I was like, I'm so exhausted, like I don't want to figure it out anymore. I'm so sick of figuring it out. It just is such a tiring way to live. So, yeah, I literally just sort of stopped and I literally sat there and like contemplated for a second and then I was like, I'm just going to do what these people tell me to do because I'm so sick of this. So, yeah, then I ended up going to detox and I stayed there. It was like a detox slash psych ward slash treatment center and everyone was all mixed up and it was like a strange place. But I stayed there for like two and a half weeks and then I went to Hazelden, Florida, which is a really good program. And I was there for, I think, three weeks or however much my insurance covered.
0: (laughs) What did it look like at your first year of sobriety?
1: Um, The year before I relapsed was... I was in a couple of different sober houses, which again, like at first I had wanted to just go back to New York, but luckily my family did put their foot down because I know that I would not have done well if I went back to my hometown. But yeah, they helped me with the sober house. The first sober house I was in was really crazy and unstable. It was like the lady that started it only had maybe five months sober or something. So and it was like a beautiful house. And at first it was like pretty normal. But she started smoking crack unbeknownst to us. I just came home one day and she had moved in like seven guys with like at first Never there were a like maybe sign. eight girls.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: They were literally all just moving in and she kept moving my room around because she was like you'd do better here you'd better here so I wasn't even unpacking my suitcase because I knew I was going to move again but my like level of stability had been so low before that this was like normal but yeah and then I came home one day and she had put cameras everywhere like in the inside of the home um not like in the bathrooms but all around and she was super paranoid that there were all these like relationships going on and stuff and there really weren't it was mostly like me and older women and then there were like some younger guys but none of us were interested in each other at all should come in with like the footage and replay it and be like why were you in the kitchen why did you get a glass of water and then go back to your room and then come out again and just all of this insanity so yeah and then it just ended up getting really crazy. So I moved to another sober house. But that was the point when I relapsed was right after I moved out of that second sober house because I didn't have that accountability. I think the fact that I had hit a year, my ego, (laughs) like like I think when they talk about relapsing around a year, that really is true that your ego hits this new level of like now I have a year sober. Yeah,
0: because it feels like an eternity.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. And that's when at that point um, I had built really good friendships. I'm still best friends with all the same people now. And I had um, gotten a job because I had no work ethic before. I was completely unemployable. The first maybe three to four months sober, I was sleeping until like 4 or 5 p.m. and then just like trying to get to a meeting. And that was like the most that I could do. I was so out of it. (laughs) People that knew me then, when they talk about it, like I didn't even have any idea how out of it I really was. Like my friend calls me like most improved because (laughs) I'm such a mess. (laughs) <laughs> the beginning. Oh, my God, Um, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, no, it it was it was rough for a while. Like I was having little seizures. My health still wasn't good. I had no energy. It wasn't easy at the beginning, but I was building these relationships and friendships. And like I had been so isolated before that. And just having like these moments of like laughter and fun um, was enough to make me like, okay, I want to keep going. I don't want to lose this. And then I kept just getting more and more to lose, like as time went on, because at the beginning, you don't really have I didn't really have anything to lose. Like, that's why I just kept going in and out. But at that point, it was like, you know, I I was getting more and more that I valued, which was so important. Yeah. So then when I relapsed, that's when I was like, I'm really going to do this because If you had asked me a few days before, I would have told you, no, I would never smoke weed again. I know the consequences of that. I had all this like self-knowledge that I thought was going to carry me. And then when I saw how quickly my addiction snuck in and just took over and like how quickly I went from, no, I'm not going to smoke at all to I'm going to do this and that's it. I was like, wow, there's this is a stronger thing than I thought it was even now. So I was like, I need to do a full digging of everything, like a full cleaning. So that's when I actually got into the steps and service and all that stuff. And it changed everything with like the way that I reacted to the world. What
0: does your routine look like in terms of your daily or weekly life at this point that is part of keeping you in recovery?
1: Um, I've really built a relationship with like a higher power, spirituality, all that. So um, even though I'm not religious or Christian or anything I do try to pray every morning pray throughout the day kind of like set my intentions with my conception of a higher power at the beginning the God thing was I was like I'm not gonna even look at that part of all this but um, I really do feel like I built my sort of spirituality going through the steps so I try to pray throughout the day every morning every evening meditate and then I go to three to four meetings a week. And I have had points where I've only been going to one meeting and I've realized, okay, I'm starting to see little bits of defects come up or like just I'm not feeling as plugged in. And then I've gone back and I feel like right now I'm at a pretty good balance. And then also I haven't been writing consistently, but I do try like I am trying to get back doing a like little mini fourth step just to kind of clean up any sort of resentments that I've built over the past few years since I did mine. But I'm realizing like when there's not a whole lot of pain motivating me, it's harder to stay so vigilant with that stuff. So that's been my goal is to get through that writing now and write every day just to keep myself accountable.
0: Yep. We are driven by pain. Unfortunately, you've built up quite a TikTok following. What has that experience been like?
1: um i don't know it's kind of weird like i don't even tell anyone about it unless they find it it has been cool to kind of like build a community that probably similar to the people that listen to your podcast like we all have kind of a common thread so yeah that's been cool to kind of see people in the comments have people reach out asking for help and yeah i don't know i try to like tell stories that will bring people in who have been through similar things like and kind of find humor in it or whatever without glorifying it or like making it seem like it was more fun than it was yeah so yeah yeah.
0: well this has been awesome thank you so much for coming on and and talking to me and telling your story where can people find you uh tiktok instagram website where where can people find you if they want to get in touch
1: um my tiktok is at rehab bestie um and then my instagram Instagram is Quinn Harlow, Q-U-I-N-N-H-A-R-L-O-W. Those are pretty much the main social medias that I use. Um, And then also to make people aware of peer recovery and like how beneficial that's been because it's it's a relatively new thing my job is a peer recovery specialist they now have them in treatment centers it's a resource that can be used by a lot of people if you like look into it and it's just all um everyone that i work with are people that have lived experience in recovery and have like been through it in one way or another so yeah just to kind of give a shout out to peer recovery. It's a really awesome thing that's kind of building.
0: Love that. Love that. Thank you for doing that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Quinn. Really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it so much. It was great talking to you.
0: So I'm wearing this sweatshirt that says Capricorn on it, which felt really cool Mm -hmm. when I bought it. Mm -hmm. But as I'm walking around with a Capricorn sweatshirt on, I'm questioning my decisions. Do you have thoughts?
2: I think it's terrible and you should be embarrassed. (laughs) You're much too old. Like it's it's embarrassing. Like, okay. Are you trying to signal to other compatible astrology signs that... Like now it's available? women because I'm just like, I don't give a shit what
0: the men <laughs> think. It's even more embarrassing. I'm like, do you want to be my friend?
2: Oh, God. Really? We're compatible in a zodiac sense. Yeah. No, I've, I've,
0: I've completely jumped the <laughs> I. Uh, but
2: also,
1: but it's but also, I
2: mean, here's the thing. Here's what I think about clothes in general.
0: Okay. Clothes in general.
2: Right. So you're obviously there's something you're trying to express
0: i'm 29
2: everybody is well yeah yeah yeah, that's what you're always trying to express not just clothes but just life generally i think half of it is you're trying to put an image on yourself that you're hoping other people will connect with that image and be like yeah you're one of my people so yeah yeah if you're a zodiac minded person you're in the you know you've got a family strong family tradition of the zodiac it's a part of if they want to vibe with you they want to vibe with you that's the way in. So I don't think it's like horrible. I mean, you should be embarrassed, but like it's not the worst.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. No, I appreciate that cuz like I've all the things to be embarrassed about of myself on a regular basis. I think it's like low on the list, but definitely it's there. It's in the realm. Oh my god. So I was reading, I I'm doing more information than you want, but I'm doing I'm, I'm I'm putting together some of like this media stuff that I've done and I'm going through I had to go through like all my media press articles, whatever. So I have this document and I'm going through. I'm clicking through. Like I see this article that I wrote. It's actually like five years ago or whatever. It's actually very good. My writing is good.
2: Toot toot.
0: Yeah, like toot toot. <laughs> no, no. Hold on. Hold on. Just <laughs>
2: wait, for yeah, wait for the butt. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We're
0: we we're, go- we're Click. Click, click up the roller coaster here, right? The writing is good. But like it's a lot of information to give the world that like could easily be found. Like if you want to know my story, you have to sit down and click on the podcast. You gotta find it. You gotta listen to it. You gotta you have to be committed to wanting to hear my story. Like with this, you don't have to be that committed. Like it could just land in your inbox and you could read it. <laughs> and it was, I mean, it's good, right? Like it's it's yeah. a good thing. But I had this moment of being embarrassed of, or like, not shame is the wrong word. Like, I'm not ashamed, but I was sort of like, oh, I don't know. I don't, like, fuck, people are going to know that about me.
2: It is kind of like the, it's like a book description versus the book. Exactly. Right? You yeah, know? like, if
0: you want to know and you want to read the book, we're cool. We're cool. Yeah. But like, oof, I mean, it, I wasn't like, oh, my God, I was probed as a child, but like not far off.
2: <laughs> yeah. All the Polaroids that you put in. The oh, article, yeah, yeah, the Polaroids. Too, those aren't yeah, yeah, as yeah. helpful. And they do yeah, feel my nudes. right, right. It was you put a lot. Six is a lot. Six for, is a lot. For one piece
0: for an authority mag article but i was just like okay so some people are gonna know that who didn't need to know that (laughs) oh
2: god it's better that way in the long run it's better that way you know because if nothing else the next time you have a conversation with that person you can skip all the inane small talk and just be like so you too huh
0: yeah 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 I mean, for I the stripper
2: pole. Okay. Just like, just like, luckily, just I left like that me. out.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> You know, when you're saying all this stuff about your story, it is it is. when I was talking to Quinn. It's sort of like I had a little Ashley bingo card, and I was seeing how many areas of overlap you two had. And yeah. I was like, this what, is going to be great. Did you win? Because cause I won. I didn't get all of all the spaces, but I got enough oh. to win. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. I got, okay. yeah, I yeah, got yeah. bingo, but I yeah. didn't like if if bingo was filled a whole board, like I didn't have that. There's, you got know, it. you've got some unique... Yeah. I've not heard some of your iterations of things. You have a real talent for your originality. <laughs> oh, but, I, but I but but I, I found that the similarities that I really liked and why I wanted to talk to Quinn too was like she had, was able to put context around a lot of the things, but that when you guys talked, you'd be like, yep, ding, ding. Yep, yep, yep. That's me too. That's me too. And could understand each other on a level that I always enjoy personally as a listener to the show, not just the producer.
0: Yeah, she's still like like in the first five years so she's really building the foundation and was able to pinpoint things that i forget to talk about i love when she said like if you had had me take a polygraph test i would have told you i would have passed it because i really believed i was going to make a life change and i'm like that is some real shit." it is confusing for those people around us because the reality is we are telling the truth. We really do think that. We really do believe that. And we have every intention. It's just that we're wrong. <laughs> it just doesn't, you know, we don't see that. We don't see the patterns. We might see patterns in so many other areas of our lives or areas of other people's lives. Like we might be really competent. But when it comes to this area of our brain, this these neural pathways that are just well-worn, it's just not, it's not a pretty sight.
2: So my favorite story of this episode was the running up and down the the mountain because there wasn't enough oxygen. Were you into that? I just appreciated the commitment to yeah. both nature, fitness... Yeah, yeah, And, you know, a very specific way of smoking weed, which is impressive. You know, I just, I appreciate the the ingenuity, right? It was, it turned into a heroic effort just to get to this place, just running up and down the mountain. I was like, wow, if I saw this, I would feel equally as impressed. I'd be like, wow, I don't know what's happening here, but they're really getting after it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) She must be training for an Ironman or something. What's happening here?
2: Ashley... I said Ashley. I think Ashley. that's what we should. I think we should call you Ashley now. Ashley,
0: yes, Ashley, sir. Yes. Uh, anything
2: you want to leave the people with this week?
0: Uh, Just gratitude. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your listenership. And I hope that this episode was helpful and you got a nugget of wisdom that you might be compelled to share with someone else uh, or even share the episode. And if you would like to follow Quinn, check her out on TikTok at Rehab Bestie. See you next week. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.